0: Well, we're starting a new chapter today. It's taken us six months almost exactly to get through the first three chapters. We're starting chapter four this morning in a very well-known story, the Samaritan woman at the well who meets Jesus. And there is a, a wonderful, very tender, intimate interlude that happens between our Lord very much in the throes of his humanity. He's thirsty. He's tired. He's traveled north from Judea. Uh, up into Samaria, a place where a Jewish man tried to avoid altogether to go. And he finds himself at this well, and he's thirsty. And he sees a woman who comes to the well to draw water in the middle of the day. And, well, let's read the text together. This morning, under the title, Living Water, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. Let's read that now together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. This is a a wonderful narrative. We feel as though we've walked in on a on a very personal meeting here by our Lord and between him and this woman uh, at the well. And we we ask, Lord, for understanding. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as we look into this narrative to see exactly what the significance of this story is for us as we are reflecting on all that John, the, who is the human instrument of writing this gospel, has shown us so far already in the first three chapters. And so, Lord, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is a very popular story, one of the most popular stories perhaps in the Gospels or even in the, the, the whole New Testament. It's really not a story about a woman, though. The main character in this story, of course, as always, is Jesus Christ. He's the main story in the whole of Scripture. It is the Scriptures, after all, that speak of him. And so, but he's going into these different scenes, and God in his providence and the orchestration of his eternal word is choosing which stories would remain eternal. So there's a juxtaposition here that's rather intriguing. We're coming off his, his private meeting with Nicodemus, and now we're in a very private meeting with the woman at the well, who is a Samaritan, diametrically opposing backgrounds, completely different from gender to, to everything you can imagine. We'll cover it as we go along, but it, 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 it captured my fascination to see and sort of juxtapose those two together to see why the Lord would do it this way and have us go from one story to the next. And it's really very interesting, but the main purpose of this intimate story, of course, as always with John the Apostle, is that Christ may be seen very clearly in his deity, not only in his deity, but clearly in this particular case, his humanity was, of course, the God-man, fully man and fully God, and that's what we're seeing here. We saw his miracles performed, and even the juxtaposition of those in chapter 2. You see the wedding at Canaan, very much different than him going from there to Jerusalem and clearing out the temple, but nevertheless unleashing a power that made it clear that this is no less than God himself, and also demonstrating that in his omniscience, as there were those who were supposedly believing in him at the end of that chapter. And he did not allow himself to entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. Only God is omniscient. Only God has the power to turn six 30 gallon vessels of pure water into wine or to go and clear out the entire Gentile courtyard area of the temple of all the money changers. So, We've already been well impressed, and that's not even to mention chapter 1, where Jesus Christ is the Word. He starts out that way. We got it, busting out of the gates, knowing that this is the Logos. This is the eternal Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God, and we went on from there. So we've seen him, be, that he's the light, and the light has become the life of men. The light has come. We focused on that quite a bit as we went along. And these major sort of titles that he he bears, and there were, I think, 15 in the very first chapter that we uncovered, if you remember that list. So this is no different. This is no different. It seems pretty laid back and pretty calm, pretty ordinary right now, pretty human right? Here's a, here's a Jewish man showing up at a well. He's tired. He's weary. He's hungry. So the disciples are sent off to go get falafels or whatever. They're getting something to eat. All of these things are significant, however. I think it's a bit of divine providence after all that the d- disciples aren't there. Think about it. Do you need to send all of these men to go get lunch? Well, let's, let's move along. There's a whole lot to think about here. So chapter 3 and chapter 4 present this juxtaposition, this side-by-side contrasting of this man Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. He's also, the text says, the teacher of Israel. He's probably, we can assume, prideful in some way because of that exalted position he has on the highest court of the land, He's no doubt wealthy. Most of them on the Sanhedrin were wealthy, especially the Sadducees. They were known for the great lands that they owned and their wealth, and that's what was in jeopardy, and that's why they had to kill Jesus. This is Nicodemus, but still he was intrigued, wasn't he? He's a a conservative sort of moralist. He's a, a man who is doing his He has self-generated, self-imposed system of ethics based upon the Mosaic law and the traditions of men. This is a fastidious guy who's following line by line every jot and tittle from Moses and performing it and seeing to it that others did as well beside, beside the fact that he is the definite article teacher of Israel. And he is, of course, Jewish and he's male. Who do we have here? We we have a, yes we have the a woman already a Jewish man wouldn't be talking but particularly a Samaritan woman we know about Sennacherib and the Assyrian army that conquered northern uh, Israel way back in seven twenty two B C conquered it and one of the ways they conquered a people is to draw some people from their own lands and interpopulate them with the Jewish people because that would dilute the race and it caused the pure, if you will, Jewish people in Judea to despise the Samaritans. They were despised. A Jewish man would rather go all the way around Samaria, either to the coast of the Mediterranean to the west or cross the Jordan to the east and go up the Jordan River and come back in just to avoid Samaria, which is that that wide land area right above Judea. So this is somebody that, first of all, you got to wonder why he's there. But he's there. He had to go, the text says. He had to go to Samaria. That's intriguing, isn't it? And there he is. And there she is. Now, where Nicodemus came to him with questions, I want you to note that Jesus is initiating the conversation here. And I think that's significant too. I think every element of this is significant for sure. The teacher of Israel is quite different from the Samaritan woman. We can assume she's poor because she's not having servants draw her water for her daily. She's We're going to learn that she's had five men or five husbands before the man she's living with now who isn't her husband. This is decidedly an immoral woman, female, Samaritan, despised, immoral, filled with shame and self-disgust, self-loathing, ostracized. Typically, the ladies would either go in the early morning or the evening when it's cooler, right? This is the sixth hour, counting from 6 a.m. up is how they work that. And this is high noon. It's hot. That's why Jesus is asking for water. We know there's some spiritual significance, obviously, of him asking for water. But again, he's a man. He's thirsty. (laughs) No shock there. But there's way more to the story than that. She's a social outcast, this woman. But she's significant. She's earned a right to be in Scripture because she represents so many of us. The manner in which she sought to satiate something in her heart that only God can satisfy, yeah? And that's what we want to look at. That's what we want to see. We want to see this this interchange between the two and pick up whatever we can. These two, Nicodemus and the woman have traveled a long way down. We talked about this morning in the first hour how there are those false teachers who twist the scriptures just a little bit because the most successful lie is one that's closest to the truth or wrapped in the truth. They have bought into something diametrically different from each other but so wrong in how to satisfy something in their heart, something they know is missing, something that they know is wrong, something they know something must be done about, but both of them thinking like every other unbelieving human being that it must be something I must do. And it's wrong. Nicodemus, a whole career in the wrong direction. The woman at the well, a whole life to go through that many men, they don't have to tell us how old she is. She's been around. She's been around. She evokes deep sympathy and pity. And she's searching. She doesn't know what for. Jesus does. Jesus does. Every living soul, like them, now estranged from its creator, has a void because... The fellowship with the Creator has been broken and removed. Isaiah 59, verse 2, right? Your sin has what? Separated. separated you from your God. Not something He's happy with. Sin had separated the Father from the Son for those hours on the cross. <speaking in Spanish> my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It does that. It causes a separation, and nature doesn't. Nature abhors a vacuum, so when you remove something that's significant, like the Creator who would rest in the heart of His creation, who bears His image and likeness, you have quite a void, yeah? And so we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill it with things that are horizontal because we can't, we don't have the equipment, we don't have the capacity to look. Oh, I'm missing God. That's not what I said. That's not what I thought. If somebody would have suggested it years ago when I lived in New York City, I'd have said, what are you taught? Oh, you're a religious person. I get it. That doesn't make any sense to me. He had to come to me like he came to her. We spend our lives time. There's two things that happen to unbelievers. Every one of us before we know Christ, there's two things about that heart condition. Number one, it's unidentifiable. So we try people, places, things. That's why people are constantly changing things because of the yearnings and cravings of their heart. It's unidentifiable to them. And it's insatiable. If she'd have had 10 men, it wouldn't be enough. You've had five husbands. That would give Elizabeth Taylor a run for her money. Those of you who are old enough know what I'm talking about. they they can't identify it it's never enough it's not satisfying I can't identify it I keep indulging there's a law of diminishing returns it's not enough so I go deeper I go longer I go harder I go more aggressively it's not happening it's not filling my heart that's a recipe for suicide ideation my friends way off on a trajectory here was she And so was Nicodemus. That's why everything was so confusing for them. They didn't understand that kind of language. So Jesus, with the woman at the well, doesn't use theological language. He doesn't use doctrinal language. We want to see the mastery of our master. This is evangelism at its most spectacular He's gentle, he's patient, he's calm. He's asking what we would consider banal questions of, "Can you give me some water?" And he's not talking to her about, you know, the depths of the things missing in the heart, the things that we can have conversation about, because you and I know the Lord Jesus Christ. At least we hope you do. If you don't, you need to pay attention. He's going to show you how. We're looking Someone to bring someone or something either in relationships or in material things or in activities or in substances. There must be something that will fill this give me satisfaction will give me a sense of fulfillment will give me a sense of contentment internal peace and happiness could we just find something let's yell at the tvs because we were hoping that that political party might do it or, or this person or that person let's yell at different family members in our lives who were with us and then left us we hang our hearts on people and things only to be disappointed broken. There it happened again. That's what we're looking for. Somebody could somebody or something, please. maybe it's that trip to the mountains. Can't wait till July, honey. Let's get to the mountains. Somebody that will make this miserable life bearable. It's a hard life, isn't it? That's an understatement, isn't it? It's a difficult life to live in a fallen world among fallen people. That's what she's looking for, and that's what she's looked for. So fallen creatures search throughout the fallen earth to satisfy a hunger and a thirst that only God can satiate, only God can fill. Jeremiah stated it well. The Lord, through his prophet Jeremiah, listen to how he sets the case. I mean, we could almost stop here. At least on that this point, we could. Listen, Jeremiah 2.13. You're familiar with this verse. For my people have... Co- These are my people. Get the possession. I can't even get past that. Get the possession. These are my people. My people. What have they done? They've committed two evils. They have forsaken me. They've turned away from me the source of living waters. And what else did they do? There's one other thing. What'd they do? It's not enough that they walked away from me. It's not enough that said they said, I don't want you. Have you ever been rejected before? Ever been betrayed before? You know how this feels. This is our Father. This is our Creator. We've turned away from Him, and we know we did. There isn't an honest person in the room who will deny that. We've turned away from him, but we didn't just say, you know what, I'm going to go my own way for a while. No, we got busy, didn't we? We got busy. We started digging. What? You have forsaken me, the source, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns. For yourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Don't you love the profundity of the word of God? In one verse, right? In one verse, he states the case. And I've spent how many minutes trying to say? Totally in. Inad- Excuse me? He, he never amends anything. He may amend that. Oh, yeah. You've been going on quite a while, actually. No. Love you, brother. It's amazing. The psalmist rightly identifies, and this should be in your outline, the sole source of the soul's satisfaction. There is one source for the soul's satisfaction. Only one. We sang part of it this morning. Psalm 42, verse 1 begins this way. As a deer walks leisurely through the flowing streams. No? As a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my what? Soul. For you. It's personal. It's relational. It's not religious, Nicodemus. And it's not the way you've been using relationships, Samaritan woman. My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. He's alive and I'm dead. I'm dead in these activities, this trajectory I've been on my entire life. No wonder it's a huge conundrum for them, both the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus. I don't get this. Right. Well, remember, Nicodemus, I told you that you must be born from above. You can't do it alone. Later on, we have good indications from chapter 7 and chapter 19 that this member of the Sanhedrin, the teacher of the Israel, was probably saved. Psalm 63 is a psalm written by David when he was literally thirsting. Just like Jesus, a physical thirst is turned into a beautiful spiritual psalm to make the point. This metaphor that he uses here, Psalm 63. So he's got this physical He's experiencing physical thirst in the absence of water, just like uh, Jesus is at the well, which has an abundance of water. Both use that as a metaphor to make a very profound spiritual point. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh, God, you are... What's the next word? Please don't forget that. Nicodemus, this is where it's at, man. This is where it's all, what it's all about. It's possession. It's love. He loves you. He wants you back. What are you doing with your life? You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Sung beautifully, by the way, by Fernando Ortega. Beautifully. It's just something to to listen to and allow your soul to just rest in these things. Spurgeon wrote on this, My God, listen carefully. This is good. Possession breeds desire. It doesn't make you want to pull away from it. It actually creates it. It engenders desire. He goes on full assurance is no hindrance to diligence. The more assured I am, the more I want to go after the object of my love, a a, a love whose object was distant, which was love in a state of longing. Now I want the object of my love near so it can be love in a state of indulgence. That's the point. That's the point. He goes on, so full assurance is no hindrance to diligence, but is the mainspring of it fully agree. How can I seek another man's God? Why do we do that? Can Christians do that? Yeah, of course we can. We do it all the time. Lord, have mercy. He goes on, but it is with ardent desire that I seek after him whom I know to be my own. Beautiful. Observe the eagerness and the time mentioned. The word earnestly, he says early. That was his version, early, earnestly. I like looking at both because it's both. He goes on to say, has not only the sense of early in the morning, but that of eagerness and immediateness. Doesn't hesitate. He gets up. He's early after these things. O oh Lord, Psalm 5:3, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Psalm 88:13, but I, O oh Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. Psalm 119:147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. It's that first stirring that you have in the bed. The sun isn't even up yet. Your eyes are still closed. And you deliberately cast your thoughts on the majority portion of the love in your life. Those, he who holds the supreme love in your life, before you've even opened your eyes, you've cast your thoughts on him. You're already communing with him. Remember, it's relational. And it's glorious. This is David. Spurgeon gets it. He usually does, doesn't he? Jesus, when he was preaching in Galilee, Mark 1.35 says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus did that. A good suggestion. That's the introduction. Verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although verse 2, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Way to the north, this area that he's going to, Jesus wasn't Baptizing them, but it was through the agency of his oversight. Perhaps he wasn't baptizing them, so he wouldn't cause a stir. It isn't his time to get himself caught up in some kind of a crisis. This is early in the ministry. So he's letting, because it doesn't matter who baptizes someone, his disciples are baptizing. But they still made a big deal out of it, didn't they? The disciples of John the Baptist. Hey, he's over there. That's human nature. So he's baptizing, or they're baptizing, and he's approving of these baptisms, but they're more in number than John, and that's what's going to get people's attention that there's more, he's baptizing more people, or at least his disciples are, than John the Baptist. So he'd better move on. This is likely the reason why he decided to move on. This is stirring up trouble. It's going to stir up trouble, especially for those. Religious ones, the Pharisees, they had a certain respect, sort of from a distance of John the Baptist, but for Jesus to take center stage now, it's just way too early in the ministry, so he booked. In John 7.30, it says, so they were seeking to arrest him, so this is later on, obviously, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So that's the idea. If... He needs to be arrested. He will allow himself to be arrested. If it's not time, there's no army in the world that can arrest him. That's the point. Next chapter, chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So when the time comes, Jesus obviously will willingly lay down his life for those sins that he came to pay for. And we're glad he did. Verse 4, and he came, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So I mentioned that he had to, he has to go through Samaria. And so he did. And I also mentioned to you that the Orthodox Jews that didn't want to defile themselves and they didn't want to have to take off their sandals when they left Samarian dirt and knock the dirt off of their sandals. They had so much, uh, they thought they were so detestable and it is, was uh, a defiling to walk through there. But he had to be there. Sychar, it's not sh- known really where exactly that city is, but they have a pretty good idea. And if their idea is right, it's about 30 miles due north of Jerusalem. It's very near Mount Gerizim. So it's a pretty, a pretty good uh, speculation that that might be where Sychar is. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this is Jacob's well as she identifies it. There isn't anything in Genesis that talks about Jacob digging a well. But Abraham and Isaac are digging wells. So maybe he inherited it, but nevertheless, this is how it's identified here. They believe they do have that same well has been preserved through the generations right now, right? The depth of it is some, uh, it's about 900 feet deep. Yeah, it's about 30 yards deep. So it's a deep, deep well, and it's supposedly still there. So Jesus is wearied, the text says. As I mentioned, he's exhausted and he's hungry. They're off fetching lunch, his disciples. But there's clear evidence here, obviously, of his humanity. And that's all we want to take away from that for now. And the sixth hour, of course, as I mentioned, is noon. So it's hot. It's dry in that part of the world. It's probably very hot. Midday. Now let's see what happens. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This woman of Samaria, as I mentioned, she's living a life where she's born shame. She's probably long since learned how to callous her heart over to defend herself by developing some level of contempt for those who have ostracized her, but she doesn't know how to stop doing what she's doing. Jesus does. She's self-condemned. She's hopeless. So she just continues in the same thing, like the pathetic scenes of some Intervenience drug users who continue, even though many of their veins have collapsed, they're still finding places to poke the needle. They don't know how to stop. They don't know how to stop. These are the same. Nicodemus is the same. He doesn't know how to stop. That's all he knows. You're telling me it's wrong? She's... Well, we're going to see next week and the following what's uncovered with this woman J.C. rao wrote this it is vain to expect that such persons will voluntarily come to us now i think this is a very good evangelical witnessing note actually this whole story is as i said at the beginning so listen to this it is a vain it's vain to expect that such persons will voluntarily come to us they're not going to come to you necessarily and to seek our, all of our gems of, of knowledge, right? We must, he writes, begin with them and go down to them in the spirit of courteous and friendly aggression. And how he means aggression is aggression in its strict definition means you're, you're coming on strong, you're entering in to somebody's life, you're pressing in on someone else's life. See, he didn't do that with Nicodemus, did he? He didn't have to because Nicodemus is probably somewhat proud and he's the teacher of Israel. I'll go to Jesus and I'll t- ask him myself. What he's talking about is he's preaching about this nonsense of being born again. How is that possible? And he's thinking entirely in physical terms, of course, as you know. So that's what he means here. We're pressing in. He's pressing into her life. We must go, he writes, to work wisely. We must go to work wisely. We must study the best avenues to their hearts. Love seeks to know, right? True biblical love, the love of Christ desires to know. So we're nosy people. We ask questions, but it's out of love. And we speak the truth in love, but you can't minister the truth to somebody. If you don't care enough about them to get to know their lives, to get to know them personally, as Jesus has done with us, as he's doing now, with her as he did with Nicodemus and so on. The most likely way of arresting uh, their attention is to get to know their hearts. There is a handle to every mind. That's true. Get to know what it is. Get to know the person because just in doing that already, you show that you what care. Yeah. That you care. People that don't really care. They don't ask questions. Do they they really want to talk about themselves, right? So we get that. So that's why he's pressing in. This is him pressing in on this woman. There's a handle to every mind, and our chief aim must be to get a hold of it. Above all, we must be kind in manner and beware of showing that we feel conscious of our own superiority, And quote. What he means by that is that we have information that they're at that point ignorant of. We, we aren't condescending in the approach. We move in. We don't hold back. It's too important. This is the most important question that can be asked of any human soul that's fallen. So we take the time. We think carefully. It's all prayerful. And we get to know what this person is like. We want to know all about her. That's why next week he's going to ask the questions that he does, right? Go get your husband. Okay. Like this is the one time the guy I'm with is I'm not married to. Does she get discouraged? Does she give up finally? Is that why this is the time now to press in on her life? Because she's finally at the end of herself in her own attempts to try to make things right, make things better, to fulfill and satiate her heart, to maybe, maybe have friends in that town instead of being ostracized and all alone in the heat of the day, drawing water. And Jesus said to her, the text said, so far different than Nicodemus. He shouldn't be, obviously, a good Jewish man, should not be initiating any conversation. He shouldn't even be in Samaria. He should not be initiating conversation with a Samaritan woman. No way. You have to know how incongruent this is with their culture at the time. This could have gotten him into a lot of trouble. Might have even shaken the faith of his disciples. Who knows? He says, give me to drink. (laughs) Clearly given her station in life who she is and all these demographics we've been going over about her life. This is a, a bold thing to say. Give me to drink. It's perhaps why John mentions in the text parenthetically that his disciples weren't there. That would have been a head turner for them. What are you doing? Wasn't there a woman in another part of the Gospels? who was trying to get his attention and they were perturbed by that? You remember that? You want us to tell her to be quiet? No. I'm about my father's business. Nor in the Gospels, it should be noted, does Jesus ask anybody for anything? He sent his disciples near the end for Passover when he was needed to ride into town uh, to a man who would have a donkey for him to ride in on. But that is simply borrowing it. And that is simply to fulfill scripture, right? He never asked for anything. Here he is asking. No, he there's no question mark there. Give me to drink. So that fires her up a little bit, I think. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? We can imagine her by now being somewhat jaded, can't we? She doesn't have time for pretense anymore. Everybody knows who I am. Everybody knows my past. They know who I'm living with now. So, how is it that you're asking me for a drink of water? Why are you talking to me? Nobody else does. All the high and mighty religious ones, the moralists, the conservatives in town, they have nothing to do with me. And you know what? I don't have anything to do with them. Why are you talking to me? Do we turn away at that at times like that, if we run into that when we're evangelists, yes, you're right with the answer. That's very honest. We, we do. It's like, okay, well, whatever. Gee whiz. I didn't mean to get bit. I was going to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> Settle down. Yeah. But someone who has carried the stigma of shame like she has, somebody who has been publicly ridiculed like her, she's way beyond any pretense. You're just going to have to get over it, she would say. What you see is what you get. You want to know what you see when you look at me? Go talk to anybody in town. Go ahead. They all talk. That's why she's ostracized, right, from her own village. So she speaks open. The one thing it does do, (laughs) it frees you up to be very candid and frank, doesn't it? He who hides hatred has lying lips. Proverbs 10 verse 18. Wow. Do we do that? Let's not go there. I'm not even going to look to see who's nodding because I am. Remember how the Bible uses hatred. It just means you don't really love them. That's all. If you cared, you would do something out of your compassion and your love. You would take time to speak with me. It doesn't matter who I am or where I'm from or what gender I am or what I've done. So talk to me. Verse 10, Jesus answered her. Isn't it glorious, isn't it? wonderful that he just goes on anyway. He's not offended by anything. He just presses on. There's too much truth that she needs to know. The wheels in our minds need to be turning to speak wisely, as Ryle said, where there's a handle on every mind. Look for it. Care enough to look for it without condescension. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me to drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Wait, what? You mean all I had to do was ask? Listen to me. All you have to do is ask. Why does it turn out that that's such a hard thing for us to do? (laughs) If you would have asked, I'd have told you. The gift of God. Jesus is offering the greatest gift any human being could ever hope for. <laughs> to someone who is, is despised and among what they would have considered the most undeserving of all, you're going to give this gift to her? Living water? Who are you? Indeed. Indeed. You should know who's talking here. This is grace in all of its glory. You're extending favor that they do not deserve. Whether it's a family member or a neighbor, somebody who has really upset you, they're getting favor that they do not deserve. Why? Because you did. (laughs) I can't believe that he would trifle with me. I can't believe. All you have to do is ask and you will receive. You ask not and you receive not because you ask amiss to consume it according to your own lusts. All you had to do is ask in accord with what Scripture has to say about your heart, and you will have living water. Praise the Lord. He would have given you living water, the text says. It's interesting, isn't it? The one she served water to is the servant now who's serving her the greatest gift ever. Well, you should know the giver is the gift. He's offering her himself. He offered you himself. Not just some forensic issue, not just to clear up the records, not just to give you forgiveness, which is spectacular. I can't believe the forgiveness that I've received, but to cleanse you and make a place for himself inside of you, in your heart. She'd given herself away to so many other men. Uh, According to the count, there's five husbands and one she lives with now that's not her husband. That's six men. That's not necessarily the full count, is it? We don't know. That's plenty to get that she's never been satiated through what she's turned to. She's given herself away to many men in the past, seeking to satisfy an internal hunger just to be loved, cared for, accepted, to feel forgiven, to feel clean. Don't you want to feel clean? Just ask. Just ask. He's offering himself to her, to love her. That he might sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word, Ephesians 5.26. Sending his Holy Spirit in. That's the true living water. That first must regenerate, Titus 3.5, through the washing of regeneration. Regeneration. Make a clean place. Make my way clean. Make that path straight that I can come straight into your heart and you will have living water flowing forever. What an offer. Why would we turn that down? Living water. This is salvation. This is forgiveness. It's cleansing of sin. It's eternal life. So Jesus has clearly turned the conversation to something spiritual. She's stuck on physical things, just like Nicodemus, but he's turned it now. He's used it as a metaphor, just like David did in the wilderness. I'm thirsty. I mean, he was legit thirsty physically, but it's a metaphor because my real thirst is for you, O God, I'm out here by myself. I feel all alone and I want to sense the joy of your presence. He requests in another place in Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You don't have to restore my salvation. That's a one-time deal, folks. What you have to restore sometimes is the muddy feet we get when we walk through this world and we do things that make us soiled on our feet. That's why Jesus only washed the feet in John 13. Give me the whole shower, Peter says. No, you don't get it. You're already there, but you need to come to me to have your feet cleansed. Because this water doesn't run out. The Lord himself, Jeremiah 13, we saw is, identifies himself as the fountain of living waters. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, see, watch how all the way through Our text, she's thinking physically. She misses the spiritual metaphor, but so did Nicodemus at the time. But we know the rest of the story for him. I wonder what the story is for her. We'll find out in this very chapter, won't we, if you're familiar with it. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? I sense a little bit of sarcasm here. Remember what she's been through. You're greater than Jacob. He's a random man that just showed up and you shouldn't even be here. Why are you talking to me? You're greater than Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. You should know that. What point are you making? We have the ability to do that with people that we're evangelizing. Find that handle of the mind. Care about them enough to get to know them like he's doing. He gave that to us so that we could learn and implement these tools. Nobody does it better than him, is there? So like Nicodemus who was hopelessly trapped. He was hopelessly limited by his religious works mindset and physical birth. How is it that a man is born again? Right? She's the same thing. Samaritan woman is captivated by her limited view of physical things as well. It's the same. But worse yet, there are those sinners out there who, who know that they're sinners and they know who Jesus is and they still reject him, don't they? They know there's something wrong. Instead of resenting that or them, we should investigate further. That's our evangel. That's our witness. Send Christ after them. Send the hound of heaven after them. Through you, the instrumentality, but it has to come through a heart that's open to loving, unlovable people. Unloving people. Doesn't it? Or that's where it stops. Jesus said of the scriptures, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life to the religious ones he was speaking to there. In John 5, verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So he picks up obviously that she's still stuck in the physical. You're, you're going to have to come back here tomorrow. Tomorrow. I said living water. So this is speaking, of course, to the temporary. This is the metaphor for the temporary utterly insatiability of the human heart looking to a physical source to be satiated, fulfilled, content, happy, peaceful verse 14 but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever well now he's just laid it out for her hasn't he the water that I will give him will become a a spring of water welling up to eternal life would love to see the expression on her face at this moment is it what or is it I'm intrigued. Maybe I want to know more. This is the tease. So you got to come back next week to find out what happens, right? Of course. Listen to these as we're making a run for the end this morning. I'm going to give you um, the whole of scripture is just, we have to be so limited, right? So the stewardship is he invented time and said, okay, you got an hour. What are you going to do with it? Yeah, thanks. I could use about three, I think, or more. Um, listen to this, Isaiah 44.3. Speaking of this, this living water, this spring of water to eternal life, this was the prophecy through Isaiah This is the Lord speaking through his prophet for I will pour water on the thirsty land. He's using the same metaphor. I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. What that you just turned a corner there. Yes, because we understand things initially physically in the realm that we're aware of, even as unbelievers. So he uses those beautiful metaphors. The arms of the Lord that bear us up. His loving hand, his eyes, his face, his spirit. But you see it here now. Isaiah 12, 2-4. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song And he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is what Jesus is telling her. Jesus, who is also very God, the inspiration of the prophet, he's outside the timeline. He's not subject to it, he invented it. God, the creator. Eternal life promised by the only being in the universe that has the capability to do that. This is a God who cannot lie. True God who cannot lie. How could we get that degree of clarity and certainty and turn away from it? How dull are we that he has to continue to drive, make words more plain, more clear, and yet repetitively saying them to us? How thick is this dead and blind heart of mine that you have to drill so deeply that you have to continue to drill and drill and drill? But that's what he has to do. And then one day, one day after all that drilling has gone on, you know what they do? Might shake the house up a little bit. But you know what? My life needed to be shaken up a little bit. Somehow I was solid granite and didn't know that he was drilling down, but he's drilling down. And then there was something pounded down in that hole, pounded down deep, 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 deep down through all of that rock where he set a charge and blast. I see. My house is a shambles, but I can see. Wow. Yeah. John 6.35, remember when Jesus said, this is the first of seven I am statements that make it very clear that He is the I am, that He is very God. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. And those who believe me will never thirst. That's the first one. We're coming to it. One of these months. Lord willing, we'll get to it. Revelation 21, verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without Payment. What is that another word for a gift? If you would have asked, I would have given you this gift. He says to the Samaritan woman, this is it. There's no payment for it. Costs you nothing. Nicodemus. It costs you nothing. That's going to be a serious conundrum for you because everything costs you you wonder if there's value in anything that didn't cost you something. There's got to be some kind of quid pro quo here. There's got to be some kind of this for that exchange. No, that's Catholic, Nicodemus. That's Pharisaic. It's not out of the working of the works. It's not ex opera operato. It is tetelestai. It uh, It is finished. I have a gift for you. What's hard to understand about that? So it's not an intellectual thing. Yeah, I'm making sure you understand this is not an intellectual, a problem of intellect. there's something of the perspicuity of Scripture where even children understand this. They get it. They know what they need, and they know who He is. Verse 15, finally, the woman said to him. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. (laughs) Some people are hard to change, and I know that from personal experience. Still thinking of herself. Still thinking selfishly. Yeah, I would rather not have to come here. Give me the living water. You're going to drill a well by my house? That'd be awesome. How about indoor plumbing? Whatever that is. I'd like to have some of that. So there might be a bit of sarcasm here or maybe it's being chipped away. Her mind is being... He's, he's, he's so masterful at how he t- slowly and, and, and painstakingly and patiently turns the mind to truth because he is truth. And so we learn from him. She understands things from this self Focused perspective because she's thought that way her whole life. McLaren, one of my favorites, of course. Is it not strange that men should not desire? Is it not strange and sad that such foolish creatures are we, that we do not want what we need? That our wishes and needs are often diametrically opposite. All men desire happiness, but some of us have so spoiled our tastes and our palates by fiery intoxicants that the water of life seems dreadfully tasteless and unstimulating. I remember that. I remember it. And so we will rather go back again to the delusive, poisoned drinks that fa- then fasten our lips to the river of God's pleasures. But it is not enough that there should be desire. it must be turned toward him. That craving goes out from you. It's looking, it's longing. What are you setting your heart on is the point. When Jesus first arrived on the scene with John the Baptist, you remember this some weeks ago when we were there, he said in chapter 1, verse 36, Behold the Lamb of God. There he was. He appears, beginning of his ministry. Upon hearing this and seeing Jesus, of course, two of the disciples turned away from John the Baptist then and turned toward him and started to follow him. Remember? Now, what did Jesus ask them? You must remember this because this needs to stay in your thinking all the time, even as a saved believer. He said, he asked them the most enduring, heart-piercing question ever asked. Remember, he's the master at that. What are you Seeking. Wow. I'm not sure. What is she seeking? Is it just, has she given up? Is she just sort of rambling on with sarcastic humor? Is it just she would, she believes him, but she, she's thinking in physical terms. What is it? What is it with me? What am I seeking those who come to Christ? What is it that you're actually seeking? Indeed, what or who are we looking to in order to satiate our longing, craving hearts? That's the question. God help us to recognize with the psalmist to whom we should look. Psalm 119, verse 81, my soul longs for your, get the personal possession, for your salvation. Psalm 143, verse 6, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Jesus said in John seven thirty seven to 39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he explains what that means. Verse 39. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. This is what he's talking about to her. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. His final appeal in Revelation twenty two seventeen: The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What's another way of saying that? Take hold of the gift. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. Isaiah fifty eight eleven, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. All you have to do is ask. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. For the time you spend with us. Things repeated. Things that we shouldn't have to hear over and over again. But we're, we're blessed that you bring them to us over and over again. Because we lose our way. Even if we are believers. Even if we have reconciled with you. And I pray that all who hear the sound of my voice have. If not, now is the time to simply ask for the gift, the gift of eternal life, of living waters forever and ever through our Lord Jesus Christ. So be with us now as we continue to task our hearts asking, what is it that we ourselves are seeking? For it will betray us, even this side of glory. We pray in your holy name. Amen.